Welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. Uh, my name is Chris Denson at Densonology on Twitter. I, I keep getting told I don't I don't shout out my Twitter handle enough. So so now now I'm doing it. Uh, and if you don't know, this show kind of looks at uh, really innovation or really innovative things and people in the marketplace, and um, we try to humanize the 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 thinking behind the ideas and how they happen and, and things like that. So uh, I have an awesome guest today. Nancy Gale, you want to say hello? Hello there. Hello there. Mm-hmm. You better get a hello there. Um, who is Nancy Gale? Who is Nancy Gale? I'm, I start with hard questions right wow. off the bat. I am an entrepreneur. I. Yes. Let's see. Entrepreneur is always a good, a good start. Although, what really is an entrepreneur? I'm a visionary. I am. What's the difference? What's the difference between an entrepreneur and a visionary? Um, a visionary has a, a a spectacular way of seeing how the pieces should come together. I think a lot of times what happens is you go into the entrepreneurial role and the CEO part evades many of us. Right. And so, which I think is something that we really need to look at because the word entrepreneur is thrown around. Oh, especially constantly recently. right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, something I even discovered about myself. Yeah. I am a great visionary. Right. I am going to excel at really executing my visions if I have the right team together. Right. Uh, the right team is made up of entrepreneurial-minded thinkers. That's, a, that's, a, that's funny. I, I mean, I don't think in the history of this show that we've talked about that distinction, right? Like, you know, and it's it's funny not to derail early, but um, I think that's a really important distinction mm-hmm. to make, especially personally. Like, you know, I, I suck at running a business, mm-hmm. but I'm, like, I'm really good at casting a vision and putting resources in place to make that vision possible. And, like, looking at how the system works, yeah. but not, like, you know, the, the uh, CEO type of stuff that needs to happen. See, right. I don't even know what to call it. Right, which call it is, stuff. well, you know, it, it's interesting. The other day I was um, chatting with someone about exactly this, so I looked up the word entrepreneur in the dictionary, yep. I, and I thought, I bet no entrepreneur's ever done that before. I think I was the first. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other phrase we learned on this show was entrepreneur, right, where mm-hmm. you're, you know, you are part of an organization, and you're entrepreneurial in spirit, so you, you're a visionary, but you're also like a hunter, right? And you go out and you find the opportunities and work with your team to make those a reality. You know, it's funny because I always say the most important thing is whether you have a vision, run a company, or work for someone, everyone must foster entrepreneurial thinking right? because that will fail nobody. Although I was interviewed a little while ago and someone asked me. Wait, you had another interview? I, I'm so sorry. Oh. I was getting ready. I was prepping. Sean. I was prepping. I was okay. I, I, <laughs> I'm a one interview woman. Right. <laughs> uh, so they asked me what advice I would give to someone who wants to be an entrepreneur. And I said, one does not want to be an entrepreneur. One either is or isn't. Right. And, you know, God bless some of those, someone who isn't. <laughs> <because> <laughs> right. There are days, I, you know, it's funny, and I, I say that, 
humorously because there are days that it is so incredibly challenging right. and there are days that it just seems like the easiest thing in the world and you can't understand why everyone doesn't do yeah, it. Yeah, it's like it's euphoric in a sense and then Completely. you're like... Completely. Well, there's always those extremes and I think that, you know, not to get too philosophical, but, you know, that, I think that's where personal balance comes in because the entrepreneurial life is going to ha- be filled with extremes, right? Like, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's like these amazing, amazing highs and these like deathly lows that, that happen. Yes. You know, I, I always say if, if you decide, if you, if you feel you are an entrepreneur and you decide to embark on a large vision and running a business, be ready to be in the red for a decade. Wow. And God bless if you're not, but yeah. if you aren't ready for that, yeah. go another route. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a long time to be in the red. Um, so let's back up a little bit. Your entrepreneurial visionary, I'm going to call you both, okay. an entrepreneurial visionary uh, in what field? Give us a little bit of background on uh, where, where, what your, where your playground is. All right. I am a luxury handbag designer. Uh, my brand JAMA, J-A-M-A-H, which represents comfort comfort throughout okay. the world, is um, on its way to becoming the first true American luxury design house. And uh, is that true? It, it is true. There are um, there's no there's no luxury not to not to the the scope that we are Got traveling. Okay. Uh, I mean, our vision is in in a hundred years, our name will be in the pot with Chanel and Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent. Right. And there are amazing designers here, but and there's luxury is what's questionable. Right. It, it, what makes something luxury isn't simply a price point. Right. It's about craftsmanship. I have a baby. My shoes are made out of baby skin. Okay. Um, and I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, so yeah, but in terms of craftsmanship, right? Like, mm-hmm. what what do you define, and, and what and where do you balance like your definition of luxury mm-hmm. with the industry's perception of luxury? Right. Um, definitely, there there is a price point. There's a sweet spot with a price point. Sure. Um, because people want to feel that they have something that is not accessible for everybody. Sure. I think the differentiator is, so we produce everything in the U.S. And that is rare. There, we, yeah. we, we, get our, we source all of our materials from Italy, and then I do a lot of exotics, which we get from all over the world, depending on where they are most yeah. uh, available at the time. But... Luxury is really about it's about craftsmanship and technique. It's not about mass production. Mm. So we are made to order. We have volume capacity, but my sewers had and factory have been at these machines since they were thirteen and fourteen years old. Oh wow. So thirty five and forty years later. Yeah. You watch them at a sewing machine. Legally, of course. Legally. Oh. They've been <laughs> exactly <laughs> Yep. They were all sewers growing up. Right. And they, you know, started embarking on their careers in that craft, honestly, when they were sixteen and seventeen years old and could work. Wow. And when you watch them at a sewing machine, it's like watching someone do a dance. And watching them turn corners, and you can count stitches, and you can see turns. Right. And not that there aren't mistakes at times, that it's absolutely impossible to prevent. But what goes into that product, it's so succinct and so specific. It's not about how many we can get out today. Right. It's about the perfection of the 
craft. And I think that's what's lost. So that's the true luxury design house that we feel is missing in the handbag and accessory. And how long has JAMA been in, you it's know, been available? been in existence since 2000. Okay. But uh, this is the third incarnation. So we started off as a, um, a high-end casting crew gift company in oh, the wow, entertainment okay. industry. And just fell into it at the right place, the right time. Mm-hmm. And in 2006, I, at the time I had a business partner, we went into the handbags, but pretty mainstream, sort yep. of the six and $700 bag line. And in 2008, when the economy shifted and I watched so many people go out of business, I thought, you know, the one area that's still happening is luxury. Right. So I decided to spend... Yeah, people with the, with the disposable, like, the, they, they didn't take as much a hit as the... Exactly. The and their mentality is to invest in something. In, they have an investment mentality. Right. And so uh, I thought, uh, this was 2000 mid-2008, early 2009, I'm going to spend the next four years uh, taking this brand to the next level. And so I researched for almost two years and uh, found a new factory, started working with them, and really defined what this brand is and decided that I'm going to start... Really, I'm start. I started a new company, although I I kept the name of the brand because I was very attached to it. Yes. And then I decided that if I'm going to do this, it needs to be done with the uh, kickoff of a nonprofit as well. And I decided I wanted to have a nonprofit that was so intricately involved in the brand that one couldn't exist without the other. Right. So we. Uh, we, I. <laughs> Actually, I did have. The, I, yeah. I had the proverbial we. The proverbial we. You wear many hats. Yes. And bags. <laughs> and I've had some great supporters and, and not along the way. I uh, came up with this crazy idea for an entrepreneurship program for underserved youth. Mm-hmm. And somehow, God bless, I fall off February 22nd, 2010, we were in our first classroom. And wow. so it's been four and a half years since, and it's been off the charts. So this is in true fashion, right? It's called in true fashion. Um, and now walk us through that program, because when I like, it is robust, right? Like a lot of times when a brand or an entrepreneur, like something that's established, decides to do what you did mm-hmm. and say, "Oh, we're going to do a nonprofit tied to it," it's it's not as deeply ingrained. Like, because <laughs> when I look at the website, there is a lot of information, mm-hmm. a lot of media, a lot of content, a lot of really cool products. Mm-hmm. So, kind of give us the you know the abbreviated version of what how in true fashion works. So, in true fashion is about being hands-on and taking youth to a level that they have not been exposed exposed to that they actually feel shunned from. Right. So the 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 root concept was I grew up very fortunate to have amazing um, parents and you know my folks and I would sit at the dinner table and I'd learn so much about the world and life and and as I got older I thought to myself gosh what happens if you didn't grow up at my dinner table? Right. And what you're kind of screwed. Yeah. So I thought I'm going to bring my dinner table in a sense to kids that don't have what I did. Right. And so um the reason it's called in true fashion, I'll start there, is not it is not a fashion program. It it 
uh, throws homage you know, to, or pays homage to my industry. Sure. Um, it's because I believe that what is truly in fashion is to step up and reach out, to get educated, to think like an entrepreneur. That's what is really in fashion. Right. Once you have that, you can accessorize right. So it success is in fashion. Success is in fashion. So we bring in a host company every year. The, co- the host company qualifications are that they must be made in the USA and they must be a luxury brand. And the reason for the USA is quite obvious, I, I believe. The reason for the luxury brand is that these kids feel that that is not a world they are welcome in. Right. And so we focus on business marketing and design. And the students design a product that will go into competition to be sold through the host company. So right now we're using my bag line, Jama. Yeah. Um, next time, it, it could be an automobile company. It could be a furniture company. Sure. The product actually becomes inconsequential. It's just so that at the end... It's the process. It's the process, and the students can touch something at the end. Right. And then they can watch, in this case, when they're doing bags. And my line has men's and women's bags. So you make man bags. Did you bring, uh, did you bring me one? I didn't... Uh, I, you kind of walked in a little... Gosh, empty, a little I did bring you there. a little present. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, so I, don't you worry about it. I have the greatest <laughs> man bags, and I have them on some pretty impressive celebrities. Well, well, even that, like, I, I, when I look at, you know, sort of the roster of partners and mentors mm-hmm. that are part of the program, when I see, you know, brand names like mm-hmm. Virgin or mm-hmm. Gilmore Girls and, mm-hmm. you know, how, how did you go about establishing those types of relationships, you know, and, and bring them on board in, in what appears to be a really meaningful way and not just like, oh, we'll slap our name on it and give you some money, right. but like be involved in the in the process and in the outcome. I am just a believer and you put your pieces together and you push it out there. And so I had my students do a piece for our our first video reach out ever because what these we do these what we call celebrity reach outs. And what they really are is disguise learning and they're marketing exercises and they're about these kids marketing themselves. So I said, "Why don't we do one for Richard Branson?" And uh but you can't just say, we want to meet you, come to class, help us, that we happen to have a big event at our host school going on that we thought, right. gosh, if he could help us get some votes. So they have to compel whoever they're speaking to. They have to sell themselves. They have to engage. They have to step up and stand up and and be young entrepreneurs. So then I met someone who graciously uh, – Two or three days later, I emailed her this video because we had just done it. And I said, isn't this great? And she was with Virgin and was nice enough to say, let me send this off. Um, it, the most random thing. The next day, I get a phone call. and The next day? next day, I sent it at midnight, 2 o'clock the next day. They wow. said, can you get everyone together, get your kids. And we um, got to go meet Richard Branson at the Sunset Marquee. I got my photographers, my filmmakers, <laughs> my students, and God bless the everybody's <laughs> excitement and logistics. Right. And they said he'll, he'll have five minutes for you. He spent 45 minutes with the students. Wow. Since then, I ended up... Um, <laughs> Since then, like, oh, you can't... I, can you beat that? You, or? <laughs> oh, yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> well, you can only You can match it. Let's say match. We won't you know what beat. you can do? You can beat it because it's them and even more a virgin now. 
So right. we did. We we took the best part of Virgin, and of course, you know, Richard Branson. Sure. And from that, we developed more and more relationships. And so here he was, our first guest of my little nonprofit. That everybody told me I was crazy right. when I started. So um, that really put us on the map. Mm-hmm. And since then, um, we've been so fortunate. We've had um, Virgin produced um, has gotten, which is the film arm of Virgin, and right. they're the most fabulous group of people. And they've become our supporters. And the head of the CW has supported us. And we've had Paralympic gold medal skiers and the Starlight Foundation and um, entrepreneurs and athletes from all over. And every single Wednesday from eight to nine thirty a.m., I have ten to fifteen mentors in that classroom. So we're scaling wow. now, but everyone told me, and this really begs to your question, when I started, they said the first problem is you are crazy to think that you will have mentors show up every week. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I think that is going to be the easiest. Right. Well, especially that many. Like, you know, yes. I, I think not so much. Like, you can get one. One. <laughs> but see, here's what I had gone through. So when I was in my 20s, I was raped. And uh, I thought afterwards, I'd like to volunteer. And I kept calling this crisis center. And I, the red tape was ridiculous. Mm. And I, I thought to myself, at the risk of sounding crazy, my gosh, what more can I have on my resume? I was raped. <laughs> and, exactly. I, and I'm doing well. Don't you want me? So I ended up um, speaking at a series of self-defense schools, which was great. So I found another route. And um, I started noticing from that experience and going forward, with the exception of the self-defense school, that they kept putting you into a box. And then there was all this red tape. And there was all this information. And I thought, what we're doing is really simple. And I don't want to put people into a box. I want to... Uh, did, you, did you find that they treated you like more like the statistic than a person, right? Is that, is, is that, I just wanted to make sure like I understood because it, it, it's interesting you say that where you do reach out to, to see help and, and I think people are trained to deal with A through D. Right? That's <laughs> right? it. This and is then, how we do it. Right. Okay. Yep. Sorry, I didn't mean I wouldn't derail you, but I, I no, like the fact that, really you know, point. you wouldn't allow yourself to sort of be contained to the the statistical analysis of mm-hmm. what uh, how people are ta- taught to interact. You're it, absolutely, and then I started realizing, oh my gosh, that's what they have everywhere. Right. And so I thought, wow. And then as I um, moved on, I noticed I would call certain places that I wanted to volunteer, and I'd say, you know, I'm a handbag designer. Right. Do you have a space for that? I'm a visionary. I, and I'm really positive. I can work with kids. And then they'd say, oh, you know, today we need an accountant. Can you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I thought, I'm going to create a forum where I basically tell my mentors, you tell me what you've got, I'll find a place to put it. The only thing that matters is that the kids come first. And in between each Wednesday when we are in class, um, there, you will hear nothing from us other than Monday. It says, are you showing up Wednesday? So that it doesn't become arduous and task-oriented. Right. You show up right there on the spot. You're guided into what we need you to do. Yeah. And so it's become this unbelievable environment. And I think what happens is when you put all these students and then all these mentors in a room and you shut the door for an hour and a half and all that matters are those kids, there's an energy Right. And so all the mentors have become good friends. They're starting to do business together. People bring people. Yeah. And of course, we have our red tape that you know, our 
security. Okay, easy, easy. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I, well, as you know, I grew up in Detroit, so yes. I, know, I know I know some some uh, under, underserved kids. Um, <laughs> what happens in that ninety minutes? So um, the first semester, we work on about ninety percent engaging, getting these kids to get out of this place where, you know, what I call them is the typical 16, 17-year-old because before you know it, they're in college. Mm -hmm. And although we can't give these kids maybe the money to go to Harvard-Westlake and on to whatever they want to do, as far as uh, uh, money becomes an obstacle, what we can do is give them all the tools they need to stand up against one of those kids and kick their ass when it comes to excelling. And so... We we have something uh, a couple of fun fun things in class. One of them is called dirty words, and our dirty words are uh, anything that is not uh, proper grammatically. So gonna and likes right. and getta and me and him. That's when you get dinged. I wouldn't survive this class. <laughs> I tell the students you can cuss all you want if you speak well. If you speak <laughs> properly, right. you can cuss. And is what it, happens? Is that even possible? Oh, it's so possible. Okay. Yes. This motherfucker will not unhand my garment. Yes. Uh, Me and him (laughs) think he's an asshole. Right, right. He and I think he's an asshole. Right. So if they speak with their grammar, they can cuss. Now what happens is they don't really want to cuss. They get so focused on speaking well because they don't want to get dinged for the slang. Right. um, And then I think what happens too as adults, it makes us sort of cool enough to... To right. them, so is there some cussing here and there? Absolutely, but is there excellent grammar? Hundred yeah. percent. We have kids catching themselves saying "um." We have kids catching themselves when they say "like." Right. So it's it's pretty amazing. Well, it's really it's really interesting to like meet them where they are, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to like I, I spent some time as a personal trainer when I first mm-hmm. moved to LA, just odd job or whatever. Um, and one of the things. When somebody's trying to lose weight or trying to change mm-hmm. a habit, like a lot of times it's like, oh, well, if I eat tacos, you know, four times a week, uh, I know that's a bad habit. So now I'm going to eat salads mm-hmm. every day. And you're like, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. Like, you're being so, but if I meet you where you are, like, let's let's t- let's remove one taco for for the first month, right? Right? Like, and and I think you meet people where they are, and I think it's the same thing where, like, even socio culturally, if that's a yeah. if I can make up mash up a word, um, it's the same thing. You're mm-hmm. meeting those kids where they are. It's like, yeah, oh, I can be me, and you're going to help me improve a- along the way. Exactly, exactly. And we have something else that any given morning when they come in, there may be photos blown up on the wall through a projector of any kid that looked bored the week before. <laughs> so, That's awesome. And we call That's it. That's funny. It's hilarious. It's the, you know, when your mother says, get that look off your face? Uh-huh. Like, That's the look. <laughs> and they're shocked when they see themselves. Who takes photos? Like, is there hidden oh, cameras somewhere? Oh, just... we have mentors, everyone going around just snapping. <laughs> we've had kids, and we've caught kids with their phones under their desk. Right. It's hilarious. But they really don't know. And then I get the kids up talking so that they can see what I'm looking at each day with 50 kids. Right. So after we get through this sort of stepping up and the engaging, we then go very heavily into the uh, marketing and business. And the way we teach business is not the business plans and the finances because the schools do that. And my goal is to teach everything the schools are not able to uh, teach because of their, their curriculum requirements. Right. 
So our business section is about strategy, goals, accountability. The marketing is we use a lot of social media. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of disguised learning. Um, There's so much. uh, uh, Marketing is probably the heaviest aspect because every – Every student will use that regardless of their career. Right. So sure. we start. We spend a lot of time, though, on the focus of who they are. And we have something that opens the class. Who they are as individuals. As individuals. Okay. So they can learn how to sell themselves and discover who they are. Okay. Uh, we have something we open the class with called Students Speak. And it the students and mentors talk about their greatest challenges, their greatest fears. And they go really, really deep. Huh. And it's sort of like peeling away the layers of an onion. And when we do that, there's a sense of emotion. And then the learning um, is so, so much bigger. It's also, it it makes it relatable. You know, it it makes, um, it makes them, whoever I'm talking to and dealing with, they're now suddenly, it's a level playing field. Yeah. So, um, when, and you started to touch on marketing, and I wrote down something you said earlier where, you know, your consumer has an investment mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a, can you explain what what you mean by that, um, yeah. especially in terms of your demographic? Yes. Right? So my demographic, my demographic is realistically about 30 to 70. Right. My price point is high. Yeah. Uh, my product is very quality. And so my consumer looks at the product and doesn't say how much does it cost they look at it and say this has value right and am i going to invest two thousand dollars or three thousand dollars in a bag or am i going to buy 50 bags that i'll toss away or do do i want the bag i can hand off to my daughter or that i can wear every single day for two years and get the value from and does it matter to me that it's made in the usa does it matter that there's a um, a student that might ultimately benefit from this because mm-hmm. the company has uh, a nonprofit? So my consumer is much more concerned about where can I get it? What does it look like? How does it feel? Because they they can already afford it. Right. That's great. And so, and I would imagine, right, like from a marketing standpoint, when you're working with the kids. That is a consumer that they're very much removed from, exactly. you know, in their day to day. Exactly. So how do you how do you go about bridging that gap? So we have a few sessions in a row, out ninety minutes, that we just talk about what money means to these kids. And the first day is always fascinating, and they they hate money. They hate it. They hate what it represents. Uh, they don't want a lot of money. They just want to. Be able to buy a house, have a roof over their head, and they want to stay away from all those horrible people that have that horrible money. And then we start having these really enlightening conversations, and we talk about, you know, one of the things I always say to the students is, the better JAMA does, the more I can give to In True Fashion. And the better In True Fashion does, the better JAMA does. And and they say, well, then we know the more you can give us. And at one point I say, no, no, no. At a certain point, That's my money. the more shoes I can buy. <laughs> exactly. I want to turn left when I walk onto an airplane. Right. And so, um, and when you are making money, it's much more relaxing to go to the mailbox 
right. to open your bills. And we start talking about what happens when you have that and the, the peace that you can have and the opportunities that it creates. Right. And so we are very, very big on reestablishing. You know, when I was growing up, I remember my dad would always say to me, Nan, there's nothing that feels as great as working your ass off and spending a buck any way you want. Yep. We've completely bastardized our, our pride in commerce. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, I was talking to a friend once, and she didn't want to pick her son up from school in their very high-end car right. because other kids' families couldn't afford it. And I said, that's the insult to me because if I had a kid who walked up to a man driving a yeah. Maserati. Maserati. And they said, wow, how'd you get that? And he said, I worked my tail off. Right. I'd want my kid to hear well, that. Well, I think I, lo- I love that, the, you know, it's about the perspective on, you know, or the, I have a t- tattoo on my arm and part of it says, change the way you look at things and the things you look at will begin to change. Mm-hmm. Right. And even with a relationship with money, you know, I sort of had that, you know, years ago where mm-hmm. it was kind of like, eh, you know, there's a there's an us and them kind of thing mm-hmm. to it. Um, but then when you realize that a if you're contributing to commerce right like if you're helping to put food on somebody's table even if it is you know um, a, a, a Versace family member yeah. or somebody who works for them as yeah. a marketing coordinator like you're helping someone mm-hmm. in, in that instance and you know, when it comes to things that are of value or, or like you say from an investment mm-hmm. standpoint an investment point of view you're I don't know. You're like you're uh, setting an example mm-hmm. of what of what possibility is. Right. Uh, so I, I I love that part of it. Um, yeah, and it's amazing to see them. Usually by the second and third session, it all starts to turn, and suddenly they realize um, that they that that both can be achieved. And you know, and it it actually brings me to something really interesting that I'm kind of on a soapbox about is. About eight years ago, when cause marketing began, I think uh, you know, it was it was really sad to me because people just found a cause, threw it on, and it sounded good. Yeah. And um, uh, and people say to me now, well, you want to be careful that people don't think that you're using your nonprofit to help your commerce. And I said, why? Of yeah, course, but I, I am. do. <laughs> and you know what? Because the more attention we give to one, the more attention we can have to the other. And I agree. If you are not intertwined with your cause, my cause is my heartbeat. I created a program that if my company fails, it will fail. And if it fails, my company will fail. I am, I live and breathe, breathe this. It mm-hmm. really, really is my heartbeat. So I will be damned if I need <laughs> to listen to anybody tell me that I should be careful of using my cause for my commerce. Right. And that's what, in true fashion, we are really on a mission now to rid the idea of, one, giving back, because it's just about giving. Right. You don't have to give back. You just should give. Right. And we are on that same soapbox to get rid of this idea that you should hide behind the nonprofit and pretend that it's not going to have any positive impact on your business. God bless. If your <laughs> cause helps your commerce and your commerce can help people have jobs, yeah. then why wouldn't we want that? No, and I think, again, it kind of goes back to that idea of 
perception, right? And exactly. I think where few have found the the fusion, you know, the organic yeah. fusion, where you have like a lot of people just throw a stamp or throw money at an issue or yeah. throw a concert yeah. and like we support such and such cause. Exactly. Um, that why like you know oh no what I was going to ask you is how many kids are we talking about like over the we, course of so the we have fifty years. a semester. And that's just one school, so we are scaling. We're actually getting ready to go into more schools. So far, we have worked with about uh, almost 400 kids. We've given wow. scholarships. Um, yeah, it's been pretty amazing. These yeah. kids are unbelievable. And what age groups are we talking They're about? They're 17 and 18, okay. which is so great because you can really cross a lot of lines. Um so I saw on some of your social media that uh, Bill Clinton wished you a happy birthday. Yes, he did. How did that happen? It's the craziest thing. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. I was, you have some good circles. You've, I, you've done some things right. I'll tell you the greatest thing is my two biggest celebrities, um, my very first big, big celebrity to wear my product was Brad Pitt. Wow. And it was not through people that knew people. A man bag, I hope. A man not bag. A, okay. But he and Angelina ended up purchasing nine of my bags. Wow. Purchasing. It was really exciting. So I, I pressed with them everywhere. And so, um, and then, funny enough, Channing Tatum, which is, yeah. saw a picture of Brad Pitt with one of my bags and tracked one down and purchased one as That's well. That's great. And that sort of bled into my whole celebrity fueling. But I was speaking at an event last fall, and uh, it was to inspire teens. And I, 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 I'm starting to speak more and more to teens and adults about resiliency, and a lot of it comes from my life story. And I brought one of my students with me and had her on stage with me. So a gal comes up to me afterwards, and she said, oh, wow. She was teary. She said, your story was amazing. And the event what we, where we were, it's actually called Surefire Girls, put on by a gal named Heather Mason, who's... Mm-hmm. She's just inspiring herself. And so uh, um, she said, you know, I was listening to you, and I was so moved. And she said, you know, I also have a friend who runs a foundation, and every year they gift their biggest donor. I can't tell you who it is. Mm -hmm. This year they want leather bags. They're talking to Philip Lim, to Stella McCartney, to, like, she's they're reaching everywhere. You're like, "Uh, I know somebody. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) She said, well, while you were talking, we were also on your website, on JAMA, and just blown away by your product. And especially because you have a lot of celebrities, but your designs are breathtaking. I want to make an introduction. I said, okay. So... She introduces me, and they choose me. They decide I'm going to make the leather bags for, as it turns out, Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton. And (laughs) I'm so taken. So I get one of the gals that had worked with Bill side by side from the Clinton Foundation comes and speaks to my students, helps them craft letters, because I've decided that when I do present them, I'm going to have a letter from my students in each bag. And then a separate letter Brilliant. from me. And they're telling me, but I don't know how it's going to work, that I'm going to get to present these. But I, I don't really know what that means. Right. So we make the bags, and they're personalized inside with my signature and a note to them from me actually on a leather patch inside the bags. That's great. And I named the men's bag that I made for Bill. Um, uh, Bill Cl- I, I named it the Clinton. And it's a really great men's envelope. 
So turns out the presentation's on my birthday, and it's at the Ritz in, um, in Laguna, mm-hmm. where my mom and dad's ashes are. And they're from Michigan. This is coincidental. This is all like pure, pure coincidence. The whole thing is so crazy. So we go into this little reception. There are about 50 people, and there's a step and repeat, and everyone's taking pictures with, you know, Bill Clinton, and it's amazing. And all of a sudden, they clear out the room, but they hold me back. And now it's two people from the foundation, six Secret Service, Bill Clinton and Nancy Gale. (laughs) And they all walk away from us. And the two of us huddle in a corner for 10 minutes while he looks at all the bags. And there are three. There's his, there's Hillary's and Chelsea's. And the first thing, he puts his glasses on and he's inspecting them. And he said, oh, my gosh, you did this for me? Wow, it's the Clinton. And And then he looked at Hillary's and Chelsea's. And then we just started chatting. And I told him about the company. Right. Then I told someone had said it was my birthday, and then he he wished me a happy birthday, and I just started giggling because it wasn't a random in the crowd whose birthdays are right, 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 right. And then I told like where are my Scorpios at? Nobody, nobody did that. Yeah, no, no. So then I told him about the nonprofit, and I said, you know, I have a bunch of my students with me because they're here to watch your keynote speech, and he said. When I'm finished, and he yells over, Steve, when I'm finished with my keynote, I'm going to meet Nancy and her students in the kitchen. Wow. So we, I spent about almost 10 minutes one-on-one with him. Does his keynote. He spends the next 15 minutes afterwards with my students and my mentors and the, and the teacher from the class that I work through. It was just unbelievable. There are, and all of a sudden, there are just pictures of... Bill Clinton and me just talking, <laughs> exactly. exchanging. Like, looking like old buddies. Crazy. And then I got this, the most gorgeous letter from Hillary Clinton thanking me for, the, um, the, for, for starting the nonprofit, um, for the, the beautiful bags. Right. Um, it, and it was actually really funny. I said to, uh, uh, to in our conversation, he said, how did you decide to do this kind of bag? And I said, well... Rumor has it that wherever you go, when you walk away, your cell phone's one place, your iPad's another, your book and your glasses are another. And he said, well, you've been talking to the right people. (laughs) And he said, so you mean I can put everything in here? Wow. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. That's great. That's, I mean, that's a that's a I mean, you know, it's a testament to a the quality of your product as well as the quality of the service you've you know you've been providing. So that's that's pretty awesome. Um, well, what I was going to ask you is just kind of like, just from a, a luxury and quality standpoint, you've been doing this for fourteen years. How do you, like how do you keep the quality up? Right, I think when you when you make really awesome things like the you know. The Mercedes-Benz model doesn't change too often, or the right. body doesn't change too often, probably because they want to preserve it. Whereas, you know, you look at a Nissan, like there's all sorts of different products that come mm-hmm. from that. Um, how do you how do you filter? You know, it's a, it's a question I ask a lot of guests. Like, mm-hmm. you know, how do you filter in terms of you you know you reach a level of success and you're like, oh, the, we can now do these things, but then you need to hone it in into you know, one or two product lines that get released. And, right. And, you know, so um, how, do you, how, how do you go about that? Um, well, firstly, I um, don't, I am not inspired by fashion or trend. Mm-hmm. My inspiration is all structure, architecture, shapes, textures. So I, it, which is great, and I've realized this recently, 
because I'm not inspired by fashion and by trend, I don't have a trillion ideas in my head. I just have a million. (laughs) I've learned that everything that's there, I sketch, I walk through, and then it it tell your your drawings and your ideas tell you which ones to go forward with. But in all my years of um, researching the the big guys, what I discovered is uh, there are... fewer designs than we realize. There are a couple little tweaks. There's a color shift. Um, So I don't distribute by seasons. I distribute as we go. If there's something that inspires me, and somehow, and I I think it's just the innate um, connection with me being a designer, I always seem to create something, and I, I just let it sit, and then somehow that becomes the next trend. I, I don't know how that's happening, but I hear <laughs> yeah. a lot of designers say that there's just a certain intu- uh, right. intuitiveness about it. So, I um, but I've decided if I want to be seasonless and I want to be timeless, then creating a new line every season argues that. Right. Because <laughs> well, it's like it's funny because you you talked there earlier about the artistry of you know a sewer, right? Mm-hmm. Like and. You know, I, I think most people who are excellent in their role, like even if you're a surgeon, right, mm-hmm. there's an artistry to the perfect Absolutely. cut, the perfect incision. Um, you know, you look at that and you you take this this artist approach. So the analogy I was thinking of in my head as you were talking was kind of like a writer, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you write. You're like, you don't write because summer's coming up and you want a blockbuster. You write because you're just writing whatever mm-hmm. is story is in your mind and you're writing to the best of your ability at that moment. You, in the cycle on a film, you know, it's five to ten years of yeah. development before his screen. So you're in that moment, and maybe five or ten years later, you've got you know a classic film, you know, mm-hmm. that's that people will love for years and door centuries to come. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's, I feel like it's the same sort of Very process much. for you. It's like there's an artistry to it. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? I would say a creative and I didn't know exactly where I was always wardrobing everybody when I was young mm-hmm. I um, was very interested in I, I did interiors for for a while okay uh, I wanted to go into creative writing I at one point wanted to write creatively about the humor I saw in relationships but everything was in this creative vein and somehow one day I said I think I'm going to be a technical writer Really? <laughs> I, I rebelled <laughs> against looking the way I look and everyone making an assumption. How tall are you? Six feet. Just shy of six. Right. And I'm happy and smiley. Yes. And, and I, my appearance has always made people assume that I was one way. Right. And so I think I just tall, smiley, and blonde. Tall, smiley, and blonde. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so. Very different than me. <laughs> kind of tall. Bald, yeah. <laughs> but hot. Yeah, oh, thank you. All right, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> and, and I'm and I am uh, rather endowed. <laughs> so I, I didn't know this. <clears throat> so I have discovered what that means to people, and so I thought, well, and then I would be in conversations constantly, where after about ten minutes, people would just sort of scratch their head and say. 
my gosh, you're so intelligent. Yeah. And I realized what they were saying is, didn't dawn on me you could have a, a bit of brain right. because of what we saw. And so I became a technical writer because I was good at it. And it was this sort of niche business. Right. And one day I called my folks and I, I, I hated it. But I had a conversation with one of the gals at, um, I think it was Bank of America or Transamerica at the time. I, I was working with Ernst & Young. And, oh, wow, okay. Um, translating manuals yeah. to layman's terms. <laughs> so nothing about that was me. That sounds awesome. We should, do, we should have had a show about that. <laughs> <laughs> so she said, wow, you dress so much more fashionably than everybody else. But I was a consultant, so I didn't have to live by their rules. Right. But she wanted to let me know. She said, you're not risque, but you're definitely. So I came home and I told my <laughs> folks, and God bless them, because so many you know, mothers at the time, right, it's your career, would say, right. well, then go get a suit. Right. And my mom and dad were on opposite lines and said, well, then why don't you go into the creative uh, and go down a creative path like you were meant to be. Right. Be a creative. Act like one. At the time, I was interested uh, definitely in design and writing. And two days later, um, the the thirty the Mac um, thirty four hundred the PowerBook thirty four hundred mm, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. had just come out. And my folks, God bless them. Uh, there's a FedEx at my door, and there's. A PowerBook 3400 with oh, a note wow. that says, you're a creative, now act like one. That's, that's good parenting. It was great. It was that's unbelievable. Awesome. And I um, took about finished my last two assignments. Yeah. And then I sort of morphed into this casting crew give thing, gift gig, and uh, just found my way. And um, then while we were doing that, that was boring me because it was for the masses. Sure. And I got into the bags. And then had this celebrity great. clientele. And then and now you're on Innovation Crush. Now I'm an Innovation Crush. This is crush. the apex. Exactly. You know what I love about the, the genesis of this, this story is uh, that, um, and this is something like I like mm-hmm. in my own personal life, and I like when I hear this in other people, is kind of like that um, that ability to surprise people, mm-hmm. you know, with a, a quality or a trait. You know, it's like using your assets to an advantage in a different way. Right, because you, you walk into you, you know you're going to get the attention, mm-hmm. but now you're going to use the attention to f- focus your audience on something completely different, right? Yes. Which is in your case, it's like your intelligence and your ability to write and yes. communicate a concept or translate. And, you know, um, I had a guy on recently um, named Kenny Mac, mm-hmm. who you know, sweatpants, t-shirt, sunglasses, but I mean, he's worked with some of the largest brands in in the world, and it's kind of like. Some people, some of us enjoy that game of changing perceptions. Oh right? my! It's, it's a bull- and the last <laughs> thing people think now is that I started a nonprofit. Right, exactly. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, the show is called Innovation Crush. Um, so look into your, you know, your world or beyond. And what are things you see in the world, or one thing at least, um, that you see as innovative? It can be a piece of technology, uh, article you read. Something that's happening in the financial world, like whatever you see is sort of an innovation in the, in the world. I think an innovation, but that is um, <clears throat> ready for some major retooling, is the idea of uh, social responsibility. I, I agree. I think it's, um, I think actually, I think we think it's really innovative, but I think it needs a lot more work. 
<laughs> I think, it, yeah, and, and not only that, I think there's a lot more opportunity to be innovative mm-hmm. around social responsibility. Yes. You know, kind of bake it into you know, an existing platform, make it passive, make it, some, or like you have done, where you make it really intertwined mm-hmm. with what you do on a day-to-day basis. Can I share something that we are doing that share. I think is the most innovative? Share. I can be shameless, but it's for my No, this is, what, this is kind of what it's for. All right. So I <laughs> noticed when we would do our student speaks in the nonprofit that, like I said, we the whole, the shift of the room, the, the room would shift. Right. And I started recognizing, right, everybody tells youth, you're the voice of the future. And use your words, use your voice. But the truth is, kids go to use their voice and someone says, oh, but not that way. Me and him. Me and him, exactly. (laughs) You can't say that. And, oh, we don't want to hear that word. And, oh, that's a little too deep. And we don't want people to know that about our family, right? right? Like, so, and then we say, you're the leaders, but we don't really let them lead. Mm So I started thinking about my life story because I talk to the kids a lot and I say, you know, your your story, right, is your toolbox. And your toolbox is filled with tools that are simply the happenings of, of your life. Mm. And we're taught to quell things that, that make people uncomfortable. And I think it's because we've been taught to... to the, that there are certain things and events and incidents that happen that we must talk with in a way that's sort of pitiful instead of powerful. Right. So I went through this, you know, sort of in a nutshell. You know, when I was in my teens, my mom was in the hospital for four years, in for two, in and out for two. Right. And um, no one, they didn't think she was going to live. She was in and out of consciousness. And... I, I rallied from that. Yeah. Uh, my my folks brought me up in a very normal household, and I sort of I moved on. So I was I, I was able to look back as an adult and say, "Wow, I forged through that." And then when I was in my twenties, I was walking down the street and I was raped, and I moved on from that. Right. And then in my thirties, my father passed away, and. I started to think, wow, this is so interesting. Everything we go through, every story I would tell, because I would tell my stories. Mm -hmm. And at first, I could see people tightening up. But over time, I realized the more relaxed uh, manner that I chose to uh, speak in, and the more I shared, I started noticing something that I call, there was always a me too. So I say that too. I always tell people there's a me too moment. There's always, right? Yeah. So I thought, wow, there's always a me too. And what I'm experiencing is people start talking and all of a sudden they're comfortable and all of a sudden you can identify with what makes you tick. And then I was in my 40s and as I told you, my mother was brutally murdered in a home invasion. And for the first three or four months, I thought, oh my gosh, I tell the story and nobody says me too. There's not always a me too. Right. And, and I talked to one of the detectives about it, and he said, yeah, it, it's rare. 13,000 murders in this country. You won't meet a lot of people that have been through this. Right. And he said, it's, you feel desperately alone. And I had already lost my father. So I thought, huh, this is so something I never expected. Now, I could probably find a Me Too in a grief group or right. counseling. But not like a, a, a mixer. Exactly. <laughs> sure enough, I'm right. with a friend of mine. I walk into my bank. And I tell my branch manager, Tony, who I 
just have always really, really had a great connection with. And I told him what happened, and he said, you know, Nancy, my father was shot and murdered at 7-11. No, really? <laughs> swear to God. And I smiled, and he looked at me a little strange that I smiled. Yeah, that's a great reaction. Uh, and I said, wow, there's always a me too. Yeah. And I told this to a friend of mine, and she said, that is a movement. Well, we've started the movement, and we have our kids now talking with power, not pity, really being the leaders, knowing that they can help other people that might see them. Right. And they, it actually is a career builder because when they tell their stories powerfully, they start to tell the story of how they healed right. and what they did for that. And that starts to tell them what they're good at. Well, it's like one of my favorite quotes is like, sometimes God puts you through something just so you can tell somebody else how you got it through it. Right. You know, and it's because you're, you're never alone. There's very few like, only this has happened to you or to me or whatever. It's like, and you feel isolated in the in the moment a yeah. lot of times. And I think, like you said, telling the story, it may not be the person that you told, but it may be like, oh, a friend of mine. You know, uh, we had Sugar Ray Leonard on as a guest, mm-hmm. and he wrote an autobiography, and he talks he talks a lot about dark times. You know, mm-hmm. from addiction to being molested mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And you know, we talked a little bit about was that a hard process for him? And he said, once people, like, he would be walking around and people would be like, I read your book. You have helped me so much. Like, he was like, it was the right decision. Um, Last but not least, um, the hardest part of this show is um, I'm going to need you to complete a phrase for me. Okay. Innovation to me is? Innovation. I tricked you on the hard part. It's not that hard. To me is we don't mind the the, the pregnant pause, pause. Sorry. <laughs> no it's it's, it's, it adds, it's like the the reveal on a reality show yes uh, innovation to me it's really the breath of society hmm. expound I think that, um, I mean, it's easy to think that uh, of a thing, right? I can say innovation is technology and what's happening in the world. And right. I can say innovation is my students speaking up and, and, rec- and learning about themselves. And I can say innovation is my JAMA product um, and what we're doing with it. But um, I think that's so tangible. Right. I think... Um, Innovation is, it's like a heartbeat. And the reason I say that actually is because I know as an innovator, as a visionary, 99.9% of the people around me think I'm crazy, (laughs) nuts. (laughs) And they forget that that's how this world has progressed. So if we could see innovation as endurance and 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 as a heartbeat um, perhaps we can swing some of the people who may not be entrepreneurs and visionaries to recognize that these other the people around them need the uh, support and the applause yep. and the yeses exactly and I think that will take our innovation techniques even further because I believe we have a lot of innovators that are quelled by the sort of masterminding theory of everybody playing devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's great. So. Um, speaking of supporting, uh, where can people find you? And uh, so, Twitter, Jama Bags. Facebook is Jama J A M A H. Um, my website is Jama dot com. So J A M A H dot com, and then the nonprofit is In True Fashion dot org. And no when, fancy hip hop spellings no there. No fancy hip hops in true fashion. And when it, the site opens, there's the most magical video that I say everybody should I watch. I enjoyed that video immensely. Thank you. And the website, uh, the JAMA site, is a, sort of a walk into fantasy. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in and spending some time with us. Um, and everyone, this has been another episode of Innovation Crush. Hello, Sean. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Thank you. like listening to comedy try watching it on the internet the folks behind the sideshow network have launched a new youtube channel called wait for it it's got interviews with comedians like reggie watts todd glass liza schleisinger slicing driving friends with her for 10 years one of the funniest people out there and i still have a hard time with the last name liza our very own owen benjamin that's me takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more you don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and 3 comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.